Well, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father God, uh, we, we pray that you would help us as we look at your Word together, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us. We pray that your Word would sink deeply into our lives and that it would change, change us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, life is a bit of a roller coaster, isn't it? One day, everything is going smoothly, and then the next day, it all seems to come crashing down. Uh, something will happen that will cause you to, th- to make drastic changes to the way that you live your life. For example, th- think of someone who changes their diet and begins exercising because they've been diagnosed with a chronic illness. Or the person who realises the, the financial impact that their spending has been having and so they budget and they save in a way that they never did before. Or the person who changes the way that they communicate with others because they've suddenly realised that their friendships and relationships are starting to be eroded and destroyed by the way that they communicate. Now, that actually kind of happened to me a little bit on a smaller scale when I was at uni. I had this friend say to me, she said, look, Chris, you really need to start using emojis in your text messages because you're coming across a bit passive-aggressive. I was like, okay. So, uh, so if you ever run into a Shani, uh, you can thank her for, for teaching me the importance of emojis, uh, and you are the direct benefits and recipients of that, of her blessing me with that. See, there are always things that kind of break into our lives that are going to cause us to seriously re- reevaluate how we are living. And so we'll change our habits our diet, our routines, our communication style, our political allegiance, our perspective, our careers, because of something that breaks unexpectedly into our lives. And so the question for this morning, though, is this. What happens when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives? What sort of changes can we expect the kingdom of God to make when it crashes into our little reality. Now, perhaps you're not a Christian here, and so you're here and you've been exploring and thinking about what it would look like to follow Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. And if that's you, then this is a live question for you, because one of the things you want to know before you sign up to Team Jesus is what would actually change in my life? Or Perhaps you've seen your parents and your friends become Christians, and so you want to know why being a Christian, what, what being a Christian really involves. But, you, you know, you know something of it because you've seen it in your friends and in your family, but you're not exactly sure what would it mean for you personally. Or, or maybe, maybe you're already a Christian and you're here with us, and perhaps things have grown a little bit stale. You know, the gospel broke into your life uh, early on and perhaps in a short space of time there were a lot of changes that were made, but now it's 10, 20 years later and there's not really that freshness that you had at the start. Well, today that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about what happens where, when the gospel breaks into our lives and we're going to join Jesus as he begins his ministry 
and we're going to think about that. And I've got three things, three changes that happen when the gospel breaks into our lives. Well, there's a number of times when, uh, when often starting something new, particularly for me, has involved moving house. So when I went to uni, I had to move from Albany to Perth. When I got married, we moved to Bunbury, uh, and then we moved back to Perth to begin this ministry work. And the same thing happens to Jesus. As Jesus starts something new, it involved moving house. He moves from Nazareth, which is the town that he grew up in, and he moves to Capernaum, which is a town that's just a little bit further north. And we're told that he did that to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. If you've got your Bibles, have a look at verse 13. It says there, Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, by beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, the original context of that little prophecy is that it's a quote from Isaiah, and it's, it's from Isaiah speaking to the nation of Judah. And this small little nation of Judah was facing the large conquering Assyrian Empire. And so the king of Judah, King Ahaz, is faced with a choice. Either he can trust in a coalition of forces that are going to work together to kind of repel the Assyrian invasion, or he can trust in God alone. And so Isaiah speaks these words to King Ahaz, and they're a promise that if he trusts in God alone, then God will free them from the Assyrian oppression by establishing a kingdom through God's chosen king. And that kind of happens. Judah escapes the Assyrians, but what Matthew notices is that, like a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament, there's only this partial fulfillment. Everything that Isaiah promises never completely comes true. That is until Jesus. Jesus lived in Nazareth, a town in the region of Zebulun, and then he moves to Capernaum, a town in the region of Naphtali. And so Jesus, the king that Isaiah promised, was coming and now had come to bring freedom and light to God's people. He is the one who will establish God's kingdom, a light in the darkness, who will provide salvation from death and judgment. And so that's the message that Jesus proclaims. He says there in verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. God's king is finally here. And so God's everlasting kingdom has come. Now, if you're a little bit familiar with the Gospels, uh, other Gospels like Mark and Luke and John, then you'll know that they often speak about the kingdom of God. But Matthew, throughout his Gospel, he says the kingdom of heaven. And what's going on there is that Matthew is a very pious and reverent Jew. And so out of respect for God, he chooses to say heaven rather than God, but they're all talking about the same thing. The point all the Gospels make is that in the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God is now here. But what is the kingdom of God? What is it? 
if you were to try and characterize a kingdom, what sort of things, what sort of things does a kingdom need? A kingdom needs three things. Firstly, it needs a king, someone who's going to rule and reign. Secondly, it needs subjects. There's people who belong to the kingdom. And thirdly, it needs a place. A kingdom has to have a location. And this kingdom finds its location in Jesus. At the moment, God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that exists in the hearts and lives of those who who are subjects of the king. But one day, that spiritual kingdom is going to overflow and become a physical kingdom that that will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised for his people. And so the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And as God's kingdom breaks into our reality, we're left with two choices. Either we fight against its intrusion or we give in. And both of those options are legitimate options. That is, you can keep rebelling against Jesus. You can keep trying to run your life your own way. You can keep trying to be the master of your destiny. And God is going to allow you to do that, at least for a time. But you will not be able to do that forever. God is absolutely patient, but he's not infinitely patient. There will come a time when God will call time, when the shot clock will expire, when you will have to give an account for how you've lived your life. And when that happens, it's going to be too late to call Jesus your king. And that's why Jesus tells us to repent, to relinquish our grip on our lives and to turn completely around and to live with him as your king. Repentance is a complete change of our allegiance and behaviour. See, repentance isn't just saying sorry. It's not just this vague feeling of guilt that we sometimes have. Now, if we're going to repent, there's got to be this depth to it. It's a feeling of the horror of sin and the dread of its approach. Repentance is knowing the grief that we cause God and the pain that we inflict upon ourselves and others. Repentance is a complete change of our hearts, of our lives, of everything. Because the thing is, the thing is, is that sin is not a small thing. It's not something that we just sweep aside. Sin is not just like a bit of lint on your clothes that you just kind of pick off and dust away. You can't say to sin, oh, it doesn't matter, it's all good. Because sin always matters. And it always matters not because of what it is, but because of who it's against. And that's why repentance also matters. Repentance matters because our sin is against a holy, perfect, and wonderful God. And if our sin is against someone so wonderful and amazing and perfect, then how could we not repent completely and deeply? To do 
any other type of repentance is just another insult to the greatness and wonder of God. To be half-hearted in turning around, to just be a little bit slack in changing, that is an insult and affront to the wonder and majesty and greatness of God. Now, I get it. Sin is, sorry, repentance is scary. Repentance is scary because it means admitting our sin. But here's the great thing about Jesus He will always forgive us. That's the promise that's revealed in His death and resurrection that no matter what we've done, Jesus will always forgive us. He is that loving, that kind, that gentle, that generous. Jesus will never turn us back. He will never turn away anyone that is looking for forgiveness. All we need to do is come to him. And we don't even have to have everything sorted out. There's sometimes this idea that we'll only come to Jesus once we've got our lives all in order and all the ducks in the row and all sorted out. You know, we think we can only come to Jesus when we stop sleeping around or, or when we've stopped swearing or when we've stopped our addictions or mended that relationship. But that's just not true. The whole point is that Jesus forgives us and then the Spirit begins transforming us. To think that we need to have our lives all sorted before we can come to Jesus is like hiring a cleaner and then cleaning up the house before the cleaner comes so you're not embarrassed by what they see. See, here's the thing. Jesus is really, really good at cleaning up our sin. That's his job. And he is never surprised by what he finds. You know what? He's probably seen it all before. And so if we come to him then he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, there's firstly repentance and secondly there's obedience. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, uh, and he sees two brothers, Simon also known as Peter and, and Andrew. And they're fishermen. They're probably doing what their father, fathers did before them, uh, father did before them, and he calls them to follow him. He says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling them to do what he does. Jesus is there to call people to repentance and faith, uh, to bring people into his kingdom, and, and he is calling Simon and Andrew and the other disciples to do that too. And Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he is teaching people to, to call others into his kingdom. In fact, uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, he, he gives his disciples some practice he sends them out into various towns, calling people uh, into the kingdom. And then after his resurrection, he officially releases them to continue doing what he was doing. And as Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples, 
Well, that's also a command for us. See, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, subjects of the King, obediently continue his mission of fishing for people. See, Jesus' mission is to tell people that the kingdom of God is near and to call them to repentance before it's too late. And we need to just reflect on that for a moment and consider whether we have the same priority as our king. See, the kingdom has come and God is patiently holding back Jesus' return. But if we don't call people to repentance and faith then one day it's going to be too late. Now, evangelism is hard. I get it. But the consequences are too serious. And Jesus is too amazing to pretend that we shouldn't be doing everything that we can to try and get people to enter the kingdom. And as a church, it's worth us reflecting on how we're going with this. Are we taking Jesus' mission seriously? Are we seeing people saved? Or is there more that we could be doing? And so how can we encourage and pray for each other? How can we work towards this mission? What strategies, what things do we need to do? Put in place or or try? What things do we need to do to continue on the mission that Jesus has called us to do. I don't have any concrete answers to that, but it's worthwhile us thinking about that, thinking what are we doing to try and fish for the people out there who need to know their king. Well, Jesus calls us to obediently and faithfully carry on his mission, but he also calls us to a life of obedience. When he calls Simon and Andrew, they follow him immediately. Notice that they don't wait for the workday to finish. They drop their nets and they follow him immediately. Or in the second story, they actually leave their their father and follow Jesus. If you've ever kind of worked for your dad, then telling him halfway through the workday that you're just going to go and hang with your mates that's not going to win you the Child of the Year award. But these disciples, they do that. These guys do that. And that's because the authority of Jesus demands obedience. When the King of God's kingdom calls you to follow him, our response should be absolute and immediate obedience. It's not a slowly kind of begrudging obedience. Because notice the example of these disciples. It's the kind of obedience that's quick and decisive. It's not in my timing or when I want or when it's convenient for me or or to the extent that I'm comfortable with. It's not that kind of obedience. It's the kind of obedience that is instant and complete. It's the kind of obedience that is willing to give up everything for him. And really, this is just another part of repentance. See, you can't have repentance without obedience. Repentance is to turn from something and to turn to something else. And so repentance means to turn from your rebellion, from our rebellion and our sin, and to turn in obedience 
to Jesus. And obedience here isn't earning our salvation or earning the love of Jesus. Rather, it's in response to the love of Jesus. It's because we're saved. It's because we already know that Jesus loves us that we want to obey him. And so are we being obedient to Jesus? Have we given everything to him? Or is there some area of our life that is off limits? Is there something that we don't want Jesus to change? Is it something that we're secretly enjoying that perhaps we need to change and let go? Or maybe it's not something that you might do, but it's something that you might think about, or even something that you feel, like anger or jealousy or pride. See, all of us have things in our lives that we need to bring back in line with the new system of government that Jesus has established in this world. Jesus is our king, and so we live in obedience to him. Well, when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, there's repentance, obedience, and thirdly, healing. Verses 23 to 25 are an amazing summary of Jesus' ministry. Look at that with me. Look at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Notice the scope and quantity of what Jesus is able to heal, and it is just incredible. And he's doing that while just kind of walking along. (laughs) And these miracles, they show us that Jesus really is the king of God's kingdom. If Jesus has the authority and power to heal every kind of sickness, then he really must be God's king. But his miracles also show us the kindness and love of the king. The coming of the kingdom means repentance and obedience. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is a tyrant. He's a loving and kind king who cares for his people. He doesn't leave leave them to suffer, but he rescues and he redeems them. Not just from sin, but also here from pain and suffering. Now, this is where we need to be a little bit careful because what Jesus did at that time was a unique time in salvation history and it's not a promise for us now. Jesus can heal us, but he doesn't promise that he will. And so we pray that God would heal us from sickness and pain and suffering, but there's no promise that God would heal us in this age. When Jesus returns and the new age begins, then Jesus is going to get rid of all sickness and suffering and pain, but he never promises that that will happen now. And it's important that we get that right, because if we assume that God will heal us now, then we'll become frustrated with God when that doesn't happen. Many people have become bitter with God because he hasn't healed them. 
But that's not fair because it means that we're holding God to a promise that he never made. You can't be bitter with God for a promise that he never made. And so we live between this now but not yet, in this limbo where the kingdom has come but hasn't fully come. And when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness and glory, then Jesus will wipe away every tear and every pain and every sickness and there'll be no more death. And the picture of Jesus healing people here is a small glimpse into the future of the kingdom that is coming and how good does it look. Sin has tainted everything. Our rebellion against God means that sin has infected every good thing in this world. And so our bodies are, bro- are breaking down, our minds shatter, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. But when the king saves, he doesn't just save us from death and judgment. He also saves us from the consequences of our sin. All of it. And so this little picture here means that we can look forward to the complete healing and restoration that Jesus will one day bring. One day he will come and wipe away every tear. He will fix every hurt. He will mend every mind. He will heal every limb. He will soothe every pain. He will relieve every pressure. He will make everything better. And that is what we look forward to. That is our hope. That is what we have promised in the resurrection of Jesus. That everything will be better one day. So what happens when the kingdom of God breaks into our lives? Well, there's going to be repentance, there's going to be obedience, and there's going to be healing. But perhaps you're struggling to see that in your life. And that does happen to all of us at times. And that's because we're not going to reach complete perfection in all those areas until Jesus returns, when sin is done away with completely, when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness and glory. But that doesn't mean that those things can't start happening now. See, when, when Jesus comes, when, when he died and rose again, when he brings forgiveness from sins, that is the gospel. And there's a difference between gospel and history. See, history is, is like old news. When, when you get told something that's happened, when you get told of a kind of historical event, you're like, cool, that's fine, that, that's interesting. But then the next day it doesn't matter because it's history. But the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king is gospel. And that kind of news is not just history, it's gospel. Which means that every time you hear it, it will keep impacting you again and again and again. That is what the gospel is. The king of God's kingdom has come. He has died for us. He has raised to life again. And that news will impact us every single day. Because it's not just history. It's gospel. It is big news that keeps on bringing change, 
time and time and time again. And so even though we won't reach complete perfection in those areas right now in this age, that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't change us right now, bit by bit, incrementally, moving closer and closer to becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus. And so what do we do? We keep focusing on him, keep living for him, keep trusting him, He is the king of God's kingdom. And so as, let me finish with this, as the book of Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we keep going. Amen.